Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Tuesday afternoon and a busy, busy day in the Magnolia State as far as sports go. Two baseball games that are just underway, one in Starkville, one in Oxford, and tonight two basketball games that both tip off at 8 o'clock Central Time, one in Oxford and one in Knoxville. So a bunch of stuff coming up uh, for you this afternoon. Welcome to Sports Talk. I'm Richard Cross, Michael Borky in the studio. Brian Scott Rippey here with me in studio for a little little while. He's going to scoot over to baseball in a bit, and then he's got some football practice stuff and then some basketball tonight. We might try to check in with Hey Dad a little bit later as well. So uh, we're glad to have you along for the ride this afternoon. Sports Talk brought to you by Mississippi Land Bank. Online you can find them at mslandbank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. If you've got land financing needs of any kind, then reach out to the good folks at Mississippi Land Bank. Talk to them about what it is that you need if you're in North Mississippi and uh, see what they can do. They've got lots of products that can help, and they've been financing land for a 100 years, actually a little over a 100 years, so they know what they're doing. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. What's up on a Tuesday, Borky? I'm kind of scared because I am an open advocate for college athletes getting more compensation for what they get, and apparently the action could lead to serious prison time, so maybe I should be quiet. (laughs) You don't want to go to jail, do you? No, I would rather not go to jail. So maybe I'll just put that to bed and uh, be a champion of amateurism. Well, What's your first move in prison, Borky, if you do go there? Like, do you like do you call out the strongest guy there, or do you cut a deal with your bunkmate? How's that go? I'd be a keep-to-myself guy in prison, I think. No, just do your time and get out. Yeah. Does that be- work? I don't know. I don't think so. I, I, I have spoken to? to somebody that's been to uh, done a short stint in prison for too many DUIs. He was an interesting guy. Um, I wouldn't call him a friend, but somebody that I was kind of forced to spend a little time with, and he was very proud of his time in prison. And apparently you are able to just put your head down and you won't be bothered as long as you just stay in line and just don't talk to anybody or do anything and it's easier for you is what he said. That was his approach. So I'll go I, with that. I think I ha- let's see, can I tell this story on the air or not? I, I think I can as long as I mean there there's some that will recognize the story, probably that are close to me or close to uh, a friend of mine. He was in a city in the southern part of the state of Alabama some decade or so ago. Um, for some uh, marital festivities. And they ended for the evening, and he was walking back to the place that he was going to rest his head on a pillow for the evening, and somehow got turned around. And 
in his frustration and perhaps inebriation along the way, decided that he would just take a big old kick at a light that was like a ground-level light. And he broke the light. And he continues to walk, and then blue lights pop on behind him. There's like a rent-a-cop or maybe an actual cop or something who saw this happen, comes to him, my friend shows the requisite amount of remorse, but that is of, uh, of no concern to the, uh, the gentleman from the long blue line that uh, caught him in this random act of vandalism. And so when he asked for an ID, he produced it, and um, he goes, you're one of those rich old Miss boys. <laughs> at which point my friend said, I knew I was in trouble at that point. <laughs> he was taken to jail. Not prison. There's a difference in going to prison and going to jail. I got a quick one after this that will distinguish the two. Okay. So he goes to jail, but uh, he has tales of prison kind of circling around in his mind, and he is not one who is interested in being um, uh, taken advantage of while in prison, jail. And so... You know, you go into jail and they take your shoelaces out and, you know, he's, he's in a suit. He's been at a wedding and whatnot. And he said, he, he says he has just a small moment of, okay, what am I going to do now? And he decides to go crazy. So he's in a suit with no tie, dress shoes with no laces, and he begins to punch everything in sight. The cinder block wall, the metal bed, kicking, yelling, screaming, and this goes on for some period of time, and then he just sits down on the bed. And I, I, I don't know if it's a drunk tank or what exactly it is, but there is a uh, another inmate, we'll call it, who ambles over to him, and this person that I know is, you know, he's steaming mad. And the guy kind of leans down to him, and my friend looks up, and he goes, what? And the guy goes, just so you know, you crazy, man. Ain't nobody going to mess with you. <laughs> so it worked. <laughs> so it worked. And um, I think the ride home after being retrieved by uh, one of his parents was a, a fairly quiet ride home the, uh, the next day. But uh, that's one way to go about it. I, I don't know if it's the uh, the recommended way to go about it, but it is one way to go about it. I'm glad you distinguished the difference between jail and prison because I once knew a kid that went down for to Florida area, same type of deal, but for spring break, um, was assessed a ticket for drinking underage, arrested, you know, they usually put you in the tank, you pay your fine, you go. Well, they messed up the paperwork on his booking and he got tossed into gin pop and what is gin pop? general population oh uh, yeah so he like it's like a day and a half before he gets out like gets in front of a judge and like basically explains to the judge he was like was that necessary to put me in there like the judge of course didn't realize what had gone on he was like wait a minute you were in general population and his face went white just let him walk (laughs) no more charges you have served your time young man (laughs) wait a minute you honestly probably worked out for the guy you get arrested for minor in possession though in Walton County, yes, they changed. I think it was to try to crack down on, you know, Man, I got, I got an MIP on spring break in college, and it was a $150 fine on a traffic ticket that I paid that week and never had to deal with it again. 
Lucky you. Good for you. Good for you, Borky. Uh, we got a bunch to get to besides prison tales, jail tales. Uh, this Maybe that should be a new segment of the show, jail tales. Perhaps some of you have got uh, stories that you'd like to yeah, share. Yeah, if you've been to prison, text us. 601 Not, uh, no, wait. Jail. Do we want to hear from people who have been to prison? Both. Or people who have been locked up overnight in the clink? We don't discriminate on punishments here. Yeah, I just think there's a difference. I think jail well, I is you made both. a bad decision and you spend a uh, a very short time. Prison is an altogether different deal. Unless you're paying high school basketball players who are really good because they're going to a certain school, and then apparently that also puts you in prison. Well, yeah, because it's a federal felony. Now, whether or not it should be or not is an altogether different story, right? And there's there's what I'm getting at. The fact okay. that, and we'll get to it later in the show, but the fact that three guys are going to spend six, six, and nine months in prison, and they're going back to trial for another thing, for just giving money to kids and their families because they're good at sports. That puts you in jail for months. Prison for months is a complete waste of time and money for everybody involved. Senior night tonight at the Pavilion in Oxford. Ole Miss hosting Kentucky. Mississippi State on the road at Tennessee for its senior night. That means they're going to cheer very, very loudly when Admiral Schofield is introduced tonight in uh, in Knoxville. Got a new mock draft out. And it looks like good news for guys with names like DK Metcalf, Jonathan Abram, uh, Mr. Sweat, uh, perhaps Greg Little, AJ Brown, Jeffrey Simmons, and others. It's going to be a, I think, pretty entertaining Thursday night when the draft begins for football fans in the state of Mississippi. Uh, the SEC's got a bowl game. Borky's been telling you this for a while. We, um, we, we speculated that this was likely to happen based on some information that came out months and months and months ago, and Borky has taken it as gospel. And according to the folks at Stadium, it is true. Looks like the SEC is going to add Vegas to the bowl rotation, Man, which I is knew kind it. of interesting. The day they, start, they announced that stadium in Las Vegas, I knew this was coming. Okay. You just did you have a source on the inside, or did you just no, look into just your had magic that eight ball and it that, said highly likely? I just I had that feeling because it is a destination location. The SEC putting a footprint out west makes a lot of sense. Vegas makes a lot of sense. Just saw it coming, and sure enough, here we are. Athlon Magazine has ranked all fourteen SEC football head coaching jobs. We'll see if you agree with their list. And some good guests coming your way this afternoon as well as we roll through the uh, the next three hours. We're going to talk with John Harris from the Houston Texans. He was in Indianapolis for the draft. That'll be a fun conversation. Jimmy Dykes, college basketball analyst at ESPN, will join us. And uh, we're going to talk with the head basketball coach of the SEC champion Mississippi State Bulldogs. Vic Schaefer will join us in the 5 o'clock hour this afternoon. More coming up with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Off and rolling with you on Tuesday afternoon. Ole Miss has just taken a one nothing lead over Arkansas-Little Rock. Uh, bottom of the first inning, got a leadoff base hit from uh, Gray Kessinger, and he just came around to score on the ground out from Tyler Keenan. 
Mississippi State is in action this afternoon as well, and they are batting in the bottom of the first inning against East Carolina. And for uh, for ECU, that is a team that is in the top 20. Mississippi State now in the top 10 of, uh, of every poll that is out there. Mississippi State, a couple of hits in the uh, in the first inning. Jake Mangum with a single, uh, Jordan Westberg with a single. So they've got second and third with one out batting in the bottom of the first inning. Ole Miss and East Carolina will meet tomorrow in Oxford at 3 o'clock. Mississippi State will play Arkansas Pine Bluff tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock as well. Got a bunch of hoops that we're going to talk about this afternoon with you. We'll get into the matchups coming up in just a little bit later. Borky has alluded to it already. Um, interesting story that is uh, evolving a bit with regard to um, the FBI investigation. We got some sentencing today. So U.S. District Court Judge Lewis Kaplan sentenced former Adidas executives James Gatto and consultants Merle Code, uh, Merle Code and Christian Dawkins, who was a business manager, to jail time. Jim Gatto got nine months in federal prison. Former Adidas consultant Merle Code got six months, and aspiring sports business manager Christian Dawkins got six months. Do you put that on your business card, by the way? You are... You're not actually a business manager. You're not an agent. You are an aspiring sports business manager. Maybe that's better than saying a runner. I think I'd put the Randy Moss on there. Which was what? I'm not a businessman. I'm a business, comma, man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Christian Dawkins was hoping to get to a point where he could put agent or business manager on his car, but uh, middleman was uh, maybe not the, uh, the best description. Um So in October, a federal jury in New York convicted the three men of felony charges of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud after a three-week criminal trial. They were accused of funneling money from Adidas to the families of high-profile recruits to ensure that they signed with the sneaker company and certain financial planners and business managers once the players turned pro. So, Borky, you have continued to raise the question, and and I I, I think it's a reasonable question, and lots of other people have raised it as well. Why is it a crime to give money to college athletes? Or why should you be going to jail for having given money to college athletes? It's it's breaking the rules. Is it really a crime? And at the most basic level, the answer to that is probably no. I mean, if I just, well, let's not use me. Let's, let's use Haydad, since he's not here to defend himself. If Brian Haydad just bebops down the street, and give some money to a football player or to a football recruit, that's breaking the rules. It's not illegal. It's when you become an agent, uh, and, and I don't mean like capital A agent, I mean like agent in the a different sense of the word, uh, uh, an agent of money laundering, of middlemanning, which is probably not actually a word, of bribery and coercion that all of a sudden the Southern District of New York (laughs) Justice Department group and the FBI are interested, right? Because now you're on to stuff that they can actually prosecute. Yeah, and it sounds, I mean, even their description of why it was against the law still, when I heard it, I thought that still, to me, should not be something that people go to prison for. I mean, maybe levy fines or something, but, I mean, the, the... 
the worst thing that happened here, the, the absolute worst thing, was a family got $100,000 because their kid was good at basketball. Do you know what $100,000 does to most families? Changes their life. That's the worst thing that happened was families got $100,000 because they had a kid that was good at basketball. But levy fines, do what Is you have to... Is $100,000 actually life-changing money? It would change mine. Temporarily. No, it would change mine for a lot. Yeah, but I'm saying it wouldn't change the course of your future. No, but I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, I just got married. A family will be on the way. I could never have to worry about a medical bill for for my child and not have to worry about putting them through college. I could. That's assuming that you take $100,000 and you only spend it on smart things and you don't flitter it away. I, I guess I'm just saying... Well, the right I, I person, not, it could change the right people's life, I guess, is what okay. you're getting at. That, that's fair enough. I did, you, when we talk about guys and draft picks and draft money and, and stuff along those lines, we, we talk about, okay, is he a first-round guy? Is he a top-three-round guy? Because if you're a top three-round guy on the baseball front, then maybe life-changing money is a possibility. What's life-changing money for an 18-year-old? Probably after taxes, a million and a half dollars? When I was in college, a thousand bucks would have changed my life for a week or two. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I, com- <laughs> I get what you're saying, and I know you're kind of joking when you say it, but if you pull it back a little bit and and you start really talking about money that can change that can reshape a person's entire life. It's got to be a number that's way bigger than a hundred thousand dollars. I guess, Borky, I'm kind of on your side with all of this, and I'm just coming at it from the standpoint of okay, yeah, on the surface, a hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money. You hand me a hundred thousand dollars today, it goes to a lot of good. I got lots of bills I can pay off, and you know. Things that I can not worry about anymore. But does giving me $100,000 now ensure that all my kids can go to college and I don't have to pay a mortgage anymore and they're never car payments again or anything? No, of course not. Um, so, so again, that's a lot of words to say somebody's going to jail for funneling $100,000, which in the really, really big grand scheme of things, is not that much money. Yeah. It's, it's kind of what I'm getting at. Does that make sense? It does. And I've said it every time we've talked about this. That who is the victim? Technically the school. Yeah. So, so the, the family of, of a basketball player got $100,000. Uh, you can victimize me for hundred k any day you want to. The schools got an elite prospect to play for them. And the shoe companies got their foot in the door to give a kid even more money for being good at sports. Who's the victim? Do do we have a problem with sneaker companies paying money to people, assistant coaches and whatnot, to then use their influence to pressure kids into signing with certain business managers or with certain companies. See, I've got a problem with that. Now, you can say who's the victim all you want, 
But if I send my kid to play basketball at school X, where there is an assistant coach who's getting paid on the sly, and it's not coming to me and it's not coming to my kid to try and influence my kid on what business manager to use, and it's a business manager who has fewer scruples than most in that he's trying to buy his way into players and those relationships as opposed to just going out and establishing a good relationship, I'm sorry, a good reputation for doing a good job, I do have a problem with that. Yeah, it's shady, but should it be leading to prison time? Yes, I, I think so. On, on that front, I do. When When you've got sneaker companies with unlimited amounts of money who are throwing money at assistant coaches and sleazeball runners to try and take impressionable kids and their families and direct them to people who don't have their best interest at heart, yeah, I want those people off the street. But isn't that the essence of college hoops recruiting? I mean, that's the essence of recruiting. Okay. Well, then maybe I want Division Three basketball football everywhere. I mean, that's not always the case. I mean, there are a lot of good people in college football, but I think there are a lot of good people in college football. I think there are a lot. Hey, believe it or not, I think there are a lot of really good people in college basketball too. But I there just is think that overwhelming you got some scum of the earth that's involved with it as well. The next thing, and we can talk about it after the break. Dan Wetzel tweeted uh, after this was handed down that. Uh, Dawkins and Code's attorney said the trial that's coming up in April, uh, the one that Will Wade and Sean Miller are involved in, they are going to, they promised a, quote, street fight and vowed to get, quote, as many colleges, uh, as many college coaches as possible on the witness stand, and they plan to pull the curtain back on the entire thing. Since they got sentenced to prison, they're just going to try to burn it all down. Yeah, I need a little more information on that. You do too. We'll get that for you when we come back. More coming up in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Back with you. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming. Supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Scott Rippy. Brian Haydad is covering the Mississippi State baseball game. You don't follow him on Twitter. Maybe you should. At Brian Haydad. Can't be at the game. Can't listen to the game. He's giving you every ounce of what happens during the game. That's uh, at Brian Haydad on Twitter. And, of course, you can follow Michael Borky. It's his name. And Brian Scott Rippey at B.S. Rippey on Twitter. Um, all right, Borky, you, you, we were talking about the um, sentencing that was handed down to uh, three of the people involved with the FBI investigation. Um. And you said there was a, a tweet by Dan Wetzel. Yeah, and... Uh, Give that to me again. So he just dropped this nugget in here in the middle of everything else. He said, Code and Dawkins are still facing an additional trial in April. Remember, that's the one with Will Wade and Sean Miller where they're being subpoenaed for. Uh, the defense attorney, his name is Steve Haney, promised a, quote, street fight and vowed to get, quote, as many college coaches as possible on the witness stand. He said... We are going to pull the curtain back on college basketball. Hmm. Do we welcome that? Yes, I think yes. I yeah. Because I agree. this is a little bit different than 
as you mentioned before, I still don't think this should lead to prison time, but as you mentioned, this is different than just a booster who says, hey, if you come to this school, I'll give you a thousand bucks. You know, it'll be... It'll be in your mailbox, in your dorm room, or whatever. Just it, It's so different when it's systemic, involving shoe companies and agents and runners, than what you get in college football. It's a little bit different. And since there are only a handful of schools that really can take advantage of these shoe companies where they're steer, steering kids to, I'd like to see it kind of get blown up. Because there will never be a level playing field. A black market is always going to exist as long as there are rules in place that they can break. As long as there are NCAA rules, people are going to undermine them. But when it's shoe companies, big corporations, which with hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to funnel through agents to kids, maybe that system needs to get blown up. Yeah. I'm okay with that. And, I mean, listen, I don't... Well, I think others probably would share this opinion. I think the sheer drama and... The intrigue of watching the—I mean, what you would be getting is a behind-the-scenes tour of how the sausage is made. And there are a lot of people that don't want to see how the sausage is made, right? Just, just give me a, just give me a team on the floor that I can watch. Go have a little fun at the ball game and move on to the next one, and that's fine if that's the way you go at it. But if you're intrigued with the behind-the-scenes deal, how, how does this work? How, how are certain guys getting funneled to certain schools? Were all of my suspicions accurate? Did I learn anything about the process? What's it going to look like in the future? Is this going to level the playing field? See, here's an interesting question to me. Let's take a let, let, let's just assume that through this trial and through prison sentences and everything, that we can 100% clean up college basketball. We can get rid of all the nefarious activity. We can get rid of all the pay-for-play. We can get rid of the runners. Let's just assume for a second that that can actually happen. We all know that it can't, regardless of what happens with this FBI investigation and the the, the penalties are handed down. But let's assume for a second that, that you could actually clean all of it up. Would anything look different going forward? Some things would, yeah. What? What would look different? There would at least be more competition for the high-level recruits. You get that in football. I mean, it really no, but, no, but, no, but let, let, let's fast forward three years. Let's say it's all been cleaned up and everybody goes about recruiting. And you don't have a bunch of coaches that get fired, and so what you're left with is reputations, right? right. And, and brand names. Guess what? Duke still has the right reputation. Kentucky. Kansas. North Carolina. Does Kansas? Louisville. They're involved in this next trial coming I, up. I understand that, but they still have the reputation of being a blue blood. And so they're still going to have an advantage when they go in and they're recruiting a kid to come play basketball for them. You disagree with that? No, I don't. And it happens in football. The, the blue bloods are always going to be the blue bloods. There, There is always going to be... A hierarchy in college athletics. But it will allow maybe an in-state school. Let's just pretend there's some super five-star in Biloxi. Just random Biloxi. He's a lottery pick, but the one-and-done hasn't been eliminated from the NBA yet. 
usually he's either going to Duke or Kansas or Kentucky. Maybe that will give the in-state schools a better shot at keeping these elite prospects local because you don't have, one, the brand, and then two, the enticement of $100,000 in a shoe deal drawing them to those places as well. Okay, maybe so. You might be onto something on that front. What do you think, Rivy? I don't think it's feasible to clean it up. Like, there could be. Well, a... no, no. I mean, that was like the ultimate hypothetical. It's not going to be completely cleaned up. And whatever to whatever degree it's cleaned up, they're just going to figure out a new way around the rules. I mean, I'm kind of intrigued by watching the carnage. Like, I know he hasn't necessarily been implicated in it yet, but like, it would be hilarious to watch. Mike Krzyzewski and his hair dye get up on the stand and be like, I didn't know any of this was going on. This isn't the norm in college basketball like they grandstand at press conferences. Uh, Mr. Krzyzewski, may I remind you that you are testifying under oath? Yeah, exactly. It would, I guess that's kind of my point. It wouldn't be able to happen that way. Like They would probably try their best, but like being in a court of law and being under oath changes the entire dynamics of the thing. Like It, is, it would be fascinating. What, what, give me five college basketball coaches that you'd like to see on a witness stand. Mike Krzyzewski, Bill Self. Um, honestly, they should probably leave Rick Patino alone, but it would be hilarious. At this point? Yeah. He's kind of paid his penance? Yeah. I mean, it'd He's probably ruined be forever. Yeah, I don't know how long he'd last up there. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of two more. Roy Williams? Uh, <laughs> Is he going to faint on the witness stand? I'm not sure if Vertigo gets you out of answering questions. Okay. Um, yeah, you could go Roy Williams. I'm trying to think of another good one. Yeah, you know, like, uh, completely, for a different reason, Andy Kennedy. Yeah, because the day that ha- the day that story broke, Andy Kennedy's press conference was. It was hilarious. It was. It was. It was hilarious for reasons because you know from the get go he's just not able to get into that world. With where he was. What, just, what about a guy like Mick Cronin at Cincinnati? Who might just, you might you might be able to watch his head explode. Really, really high strung. I'm not saying that Cincinnati's necessarily involved with that, but just a super high strung guy. Really intense guy. There's one basketball coach in Athens, Georgia, that would be hilarious getting asked pressing questions about paying recruits. I'm trying to think of it. Like, Tom Crane's a we're bright We're missing guy, a though. really, really good one here. And I don't, it's like right under us. I don't know. Maybe someone on the Twitter text line could help us. But like Frank Martin, maybe, but I'm not sure how inter- entertaining that would be. I'd want the guy that would go scorched earth. Yeah, I was, Same, I was recruiting this kid in Dallas, and I thought I had him until Kansas came in and offered him 150K. And I looked at my boosters, and they laughed at me, so I didn't get him. I want that guy up on the stand. Jim Beheim? I think he just described Andy Kennedy. Yeah, that's... But my dad my dad says Calipari. He would just, like, I'm not even sure how that would go because he's such a schmoozer. Like, he'd probably have everyone in the courtroom thinking everything was all good after about ten minutes. Hmm. Huggins. Huggins would be a good one. He would go score. Like, don't you think he wouldn't hold anything back? Like he has that vibe. That I'm so old, I don't really care anymore. I don't think I ever actually mentioned who it was. Bob Huggins was at Jones County when we were there last week. He was yeah. recruiting. Yeah, he's not tapping into that shoe company market. I'd love to hear saying, what he had to say about it. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I, I he doesn't really mince words. Like that's the guy that fell down on the ground after a call 
and like pointed at his chest pains and like told the ref it was on him. Like this is what you're doing to me. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> I do. Uh, I do. Bob Huggins, nice guy. Hey, you know, he, he he has that tough guy, mean guy look when you see him on the basketball court. But uh, nice guy, fun to visit with uh, at Jones County last week. And no, we didn't ask him to come sit down with us at the uh, at the table or while we were at the state basketball tournament. Um, he was there working. Had landed on a private plane in Jones County, gone straight to a McDonald's, walked into the gym with a big McDonald's cup in his hand, watched the ball game, and was uh, easing on out after it was over. What about the slate of games coming up tonight? Greg says different sport, but Mike Leach. Let's put Mike Leach on the stand even in the basketball trial. I'm for it. Uh, here's a vote for Avery Johnson. Lucas in Union says Shaka Smart would be great on the stand. That would be interesting. I don't feel like Avery Johnson's been around the game long enough, like college at least. That's right, because they're getting all those kids in Tuscaloosa because of... No, 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 that's not what I mean. But like Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank studio. Back with you at Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming... At supertalk.fm. Ole Miss now leading 5 nothing over Little Rock. Still batting in the bottom of the second inning. So a lot of offense early. Put a four spot up in the second. Mississippi State is up one nothing on East Carolina. They are now headed to the bottom of the third. So bottom of the third inning in Starkville. Mississippi State 1, East Carolina nothing. Top 15, top 20 matchup there. Richard Cross, Michael Borky. Rippy just scooted out. He's headed over to Swayze Field to cover baseball for a while, and then a football press conference, and then, um, well, football something, and then basketball tonight. Don't forget supertalk.fm, all your post-game stories tonight with baseball and hoops uh, for both Mississippi State and for Ole Miss. So, Borky, busy night tonight in the SEC, four games, and we've had a lot of nights where we go, yeah, it's not, it's not very interesting. Uh, tonight is not one of those. South Carolina at Texas A&M. That's the least interesting of the th- of the four. Mississippi State and Tennessee in Knoxville. Tennessee is an eight point favorite. Feels like you're running into a buzzsaw in Knoxville too. The way uh, one escaping Oxford with the win the way they did, and then beating the brakes off of Kentucky before you go up to their place. Ole Miss is an underdog at home tonight. Kentucky a five-and-a-half-point favorite in Oxford at the Pavilion. And it doesn't sound like Reed Travis is going to go, so what does that mean for Kentucky? He's missed the last, what, three games? Yes. Not been able to get entirely healthy. Well, it certainly takes away from their interior depth. Which I guess is... uh, Plus, so to speak, for Ole Miss. Don't mean to celebrate an injury, but it is a positive for them going into the game. Oh, no, not having to deal with Reed Travis down low for an Ole Miss team that has had its issues in defending really good post players. That's absolutely a plus for Ole Miss. And then Auburn is a two-point favorite at Alabama. Those two teams met earlier in the year, and Auburn beat the brakes off of Alabama at Auburn Arena. Will it be a different story tonight? Alabama's on the correct side of the bubble right now. They are, according to Joe Lenardi. They, they certainly are. 
Alabama is just such an interesting team when you you look at them. To me, um, Ken Palm has them at. Wait, where are they in the net? You you had the net pulled up. Ken Palm's got them at fifty six. They're seventeen and twelve. So that's a lot of losses for a team, and not really all that many wins when you generally think about an NCAA tournament team with games remaining against Auburn tonight and then at Arkansas on Saturday. They are 54 in the net, which just goes to show you how very weak the bubble is. Read an interesting article from John Gassaway at ESPN.com today. He was on with us last week talking some NCAA tournament stuff. And we talk all about how weak the bubble this is this year. But he said not so fast because it could go from soft and weak to hold on what happened to all of those spots in a hurry. How is that possible, you say? Well, here's how it's possible. You've got three or four mid-major teams that are absolute locks for the NCAA tournament, right? Wofford is going to be in the NCAA tournament. Number 14 in the net for Wofford. Um, VCU is a team that could potentially be in the NCAA tournament. And there were a couple of others that he pointed out. Well, guess what? If something happens and those teams don't win their conference tournament, you get bid stealers. Which is so, entirely possible for Wofford, because that I, I read somewhere where the Southern Conference should be a three-team league. They won't be, but it was somebody arguing that they have three NCAA tournament caliber teams on the top of that league. Yeah. So if you want to watch it, it was um, it's the bubble watch column on ESPN that John Gasway has up um, all the time. But it, it really is an interesting way to uh, to look at this, where you go, well, what if somebody besides Washington or potentially Arizona State Wins the Pac-12. What if Oregon State makes a run and wins the Pac-12 tournament? Okay, that's a team that wasn't going to get in. Was the Pac-12 all of a sudden going to get three teams in? If you had Washington and Arizona State isn't at large, there are a bunch of stories out there that are like that. And I think it underscores the importance, especially for Ole Miss, of winning one of two this week. For Alabama to get... A win. Be a really good win tonight for Alabama if they could get it against Auburn. You know, we always talk about a soft bubble, and then you get to the end, and there are not nearly as many spots available as you think they're going to be. Sports Talk, Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank Studio. Sports Talk Mississippi, hour number two with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Richard Cross, Michael Borky for the rest of the way. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank online at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. If you're in North Mississippi and you've got land financing needs of any kind, Mississippi Land Bank is the way to go. They've been financing land for over 100 years at Mississippi Land Bank. They know the lay of the land. Right now, we're going to jump on the Farm Bureau phone line, spend a little time with our good buddy John Harris from the Houston Texans, HoustonTexans.com, website football takeover, and uh, a lot more. John, it's been a little while. How are you, my friend? Well, I'm doing much better. I know uh, Michael had asked me to come on a few times, and I was sick, laid up in bed for a few times, and 
then I had all kinds of other things going on. So I had to definitely get in, Richard. It's been a long time since I talked to you, man. It's good to hear from you. Nice to hear from you. Always appreciate a few minutes of your time. Uh, should they have just had the combine in Mississippi instead of going to uh, Indianapolis last week? <laughs> yeah, the state of Mississippi put on a show, man. Was, How about that? It was pretty sick. Uh, you know, look, you know, it's interesting. You know, one thing that, that and I listen, even though I'm not a, I'm not a scout per se. I listen to a lot of things that pertain to scouts, and they often say, "Don't, don't count something twice." And what they mean by that is, you, know, you went to the combine and you knew DK Metcalf was fast and strong and big. You knew all of that, but did you know that he was really that fast and that strong? And, and I'll tell you a funny story, Richard. We uh, the the Radio Row, where Radio Row is in the Indiana Convention Center, they moved us a couple years ago. Whatever, I went five years ago to my first. Combine, they stuck us in the West Club of Lucas Oil Stadium, and we were on top of each other like roaches. I mean, it was just, it was, <laughs> it was rough. Well, they moved us over to the convention center, and there's so much more room, and almost every team is represented there with their, their radio or TV crew, and so we're no different. And so we're, we've got our table in Radio Row, and the bench press is kind of over our right shoulder. So, I mean, while it's going on, you can't really do anything on radio because people are screaming and yelling. They got fans in there and they're cheering for you know guys to complete the bench press. And so I hear they they have each prospect go up to the microphone and say who he is. And so I hear DK Metcalf, Ole Miss. I'm like, oh, Mark, Mark Vandermeer, our play by play man. I said, Mark, I got to see this. So I turn around and I watch, and you can see in the big screen, you can see him doing it, and I'm counting at the same time, and I get up to like 23, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's doing this. And he kept going, and he gets to 27. And I'm just like, oh, man, this is sick. And I turn back around, and Mark, he loves the NFL. He loves the Texans. He at one point was the play-by-play man for Miami Hurricanes back in the, in the golden days, 2001. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he likes college football. He loves the NFL. But, you know, this is the kind of thing where I get really geeked about it. He turned to me and he goes, <laughs> that was compelling as hell. And I was like, I-, I know. I told you. I mean, this guy's doing bench press. But just to see DK do what he did on the bench press was just – it was amazing to see it happen. Uh, and I wasn't in the bowl when he did his work on Saturday. I wish I would have been. But we went back on Friday night. But I did have a chance to see Greg Little and – uh, see him move on the field and such. But what DK did, you know, A.J. Brown had a good combine. Uh, you know, I think DeMarcus is going to walk out of there okay. I don't know that it was stellar. But what they did, what the defensive backs did for Ole Miss, and by the way, where I mean, I didn't see that coming at all. I don't know about Woods I running a 4 2 I didn't see that coming whatsoever. I mean, Ken Webster running really well. You know, and then, of course, your Mississippi State guys did, you know, and, and – uh, you know, my test sweat was just ridiculous. And his agent is a good friend of mine, actually. And I haven't even talked to him about Montez sweat. But I remember talking to, to you about it and talking about where he's going to go. And I just said, look, you don't find guys like that in the NFL. Like, he's a special breed. I mean, 6'6", 262, running 441. I mean, I see Clowney every day. You know, he's 6'6", six, six, and he's 270, 275, and he runs a 4'5". And, and that's, that's sick. Montez is running 441. He would have had the fifth fastest cornerback time. The fifth fastest cornerback time. So, you know, when all those big receivers are going out there like D.K. Metcalf, 
You know, just stick Montez Sweat over there and play press coverage and see what happens. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's where we're maybe that's where we're going in the NFL. I, I don't know because I don't know how you cover these guys. You know, Nikhil uh, Harry from Arizona State, who's two fifteen, two twenty. He had twenty seven reps too, right after DK did. I'm like, what is going on? You know, these guys are freakazoids that are coming to the NFL in every way, shape, or form. And the state of Mississippi showed out in a big way from that perspective. So I'm really interested to see what that now means going into draft night. But I think DK and Montez are locks for the first. I think AJ's probably just at the front end of the second round. And then I have no idea what to do with the Ole Miss defensive backs. None. I I mean, they're fast. I I just don't know what to do with them at all. Um, But you just can't deny 429 speed. I mean, teams are looking for it. So I guarantee there's going to be a market for those two guys for sure. Jonathan Abram, Jeffrey Simmons, are they both locks for the first round? Uh, I would say, well, Simmons is complicated, man, and I and I don't know. You know, obviously we talked about you know the video, but you know his, his time at Mississippi State didn't seem to have any controversy. It seemed to get beyond that, but the ACL, I, I don't know how teams are going to perceive that because if they look at it and say, look, he got hurt in February, you know, he's not going to be ready until November. Oh man, are we going to do this now? His knee injury was not as significant as Jalen Smith. And Jalen Smith and Notre Dame heard his in the bowl game, but that was thought to be a career ender. And the Cowboys yeah. said, no, no, we'll take him at the top of the second round. And Jalen Smith has now turned into one of the better inside linebackers. And I saw that up close last year when we played the Cowboys. So Simmons is going to be tricky because I do think, you know, maybe a team like the Patriots says, you know what, let's do this. Number 32, let's take him. Because he's a top five talent in this draft. Let's give him all the medical uh, uh, you know, assessments we can. Let's give him all the help medically. Let's do all of that for him and get him ready for 2020, worst-case scenario. I, so I don't know if it's a lock for him in the first round. I think Jonathan Abram is going to end up being, being a guy in the first round for sure because I, I don't love this safety class. There's a lot of guys that, that I like, and there's some things I really like about certain guys. I don't know if they all put it together kind of like Abram does. Uh, and I think he's going to be a guy teams, especially the back end, are going to really like. And I, I didn't expect him to run 4-5. I, I thought he'd be high 4-5, maybe the 4-6 range. But then again, I say that, and when I watched him on film, I saw a play against Ole Miss where he ran down either a reverse or a bubble screen on their side of the field, and I thought, man, he could run. So yeah. he sort of proved that, so maybe I should have known that. But he, I thought he showed off very, very well. I know he's going to come off pretty well in interviews because he's very sure of himself. He loves football and he loves to talk. So I think Abram is probably going to be a first-rounder. But I wouldn't be surprised if he, like A.J., is in that top, you know, 32 to 40 picks, you know, 32 to 40, you know, top eight picks in the second round. I wouldn't be surprised if he falls in there, but not much after that. And, and you know what's interesting to me, John Harris on your radio, and John, we got a couple of minutes to the break, and, and then we'll dive in a, a little bit deeper on some of these guys. It, it's interesting to me that sometimes – you know, everybody wants to be number one overall, or everybody wants to be a top five pick or a top ten pick because obviously the money is better. But sometimes you find yourself in a much better team situation when you fall to the bottom half of the first round or the early part of the second round because generally really good teams don't have top ten picks. Yeah, there's no question. And of course, you know, the bottom 12 teams are your playoff teams. Exactly. So you're talking about a situation where. If you can get into that bottom part of the first round and get with a playoff team, well, that really helps you. Now, if you're a player, you're sitting there going, man, I'd rather just go in the second round because if you're a first-rounder, yeah, it's great. Your name's called on Thursday, and, yeah, the money's good. 
But the problem is, if you're good, the team will put that fifth-year option on you. And then you end up losing kind of a year of salary. So I know there are some yeah. guys, and I've, I actually talked to some of the Texans about this, about going in the second round. Like Bernard McKinney, he was able to redo his deal last offseason, you know, going into 2018 training camp because he was a second-rounder. And so he was able to redo that deal, make some significant money. And then you look at Jadeveon Clowney, he was drafted a year ahead of Bernardrick. They had him on the fifth-year option this past year, and now he's going to be franchise tagged. So sometimes that first-round situation could be kind of tough at the bottom of it. But the flip side is you get with a playoff team, you get an opportunity uh, to be on a good football team, and the opportunity is going to be there. They're going to want you to get on the field. So you got an opportunity to go to the playoffs right away, uh, and I think about a guy like Whitney Merciless for us who did that in 2012. He gets drafted at number 26. He doesn't have to come in and start right away. But he was on a playoff team, a division winner. Uh, he ended up getting a good second contract. If he goes to the top part of the second round, you know, he ends up going to, you know, who knows where at that point, probably, you know, Cleveland or someplace like that. Now, it's good to go to Cleveland now, but not Yeah, it is. It's better now. Yeah, it's better now. But but you're right. You get in those situations like you want to you want to end up going to the Raiders right now. You know, probably not. I'd rather go to a playoff team, have the opportunity to go uh, and do some great things. Look at Sony Michelle. Sony Michelle gets an opportunity at the back end of the first round to go to New England, and he's one of the stars of that team throughout the playoffs. You know, Nick Nick Chubb goes to Cleveland and had a had a great year at the top you know top of the second round. Had a great year, and they're going to build something in Cleveland. I don't think there's any question about that. But he goes to the second round. He's got to watch his buddy Sony Michelle go to the playoffs and go win a Super Bowl. And I know that's got to be tough for him, especially because those two are together trying to win one against Alabama. But, you know, that's the difference. And there was only three or four pick difference. Yeah, hey, John, let, John let's press time out just for a second. Let's, let, let's pick this conversation up in just a couple of minutes. More coming up with John Harris from the Houston Texans on Sports Talk Mississippi. Back with you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. Mississippi State leading East Carolina 1-0, top of the fifth. ECU trying to get on the board. And Ole Miss leading 6-0 over Little Rock in the top of the fourth. Jordan Fowler pitching very well today for Ole Miss. We're going to continue with our conversation on the Farm Bureau phone line with John Harris from the Houston Texans, HoustonTexans.com. He's on the radio in Houston, Texas, and uh, does a lot of other cool stuff as well. John, it, it, it's kind of interesting to me that, you know, with the Combine and with the pro days that follow, you, you've got kind of the beauty contest, and everybody's talking about how great guys are, and, you know, DK Metcalf runs fast and lifts a bunch and does lots of other things. And then when, when the draft and the pro days are over, this is my perception, you can certainly correct me here if I'm wrong, is you go back and teams start trying to pick guys apart. Now, now what did we miss? What's wrong with them? When they go back and they look specifically at DK Metcalf, at what's wrong. How closely are they going to look at the time on the three-cone run and the 20-yard shuttle and and kind of his ability to get in and out of cuts? Is, is that what they're going to be looking at closely with him? Yeah, I think that's exactly what they're going to what they're going to look at. And whether you know it's fair or not, and I, I saw a video of DK running it. It looked like he stumbled a little bit, but I think that's going to that's absolutely going to be it. And I think. You know, the one thing that, that uh, teams like to do, and I know scouts like to do in some sense, and, and maybe they have to do it, is they, they look at a player and then they, fair or unfair, they try and compare him to somebody. And they, okay, if this guy's a bust, who does he remind you of? If this guy's a star, who does he remind you of? And so, you know, the, the name Kevin White has come up, you know, with the Bears, who was at West Virginia. 
And Kevin White had an outstanding final year. West Virginia declared for the draft. And I think he ended up going number seven to the Chicago Bears in 16, uh, 2000, yeah, 2016, I think it was, or maybe 2015. But anyway, he was 2015. So he was a guy that had every measurable. Then he runs four, three, seven. It's like, wow, where, where is there a problem with this guy? And then you realize, well, he can't catch a cold. Well, he can't hmm. catch the ball. You know, and so that, that came to fruition. And that was obviously the Bears' worst nightmare. They needed a pass catcher. And they're like, look, but we got this athlete. This athlete's going to be great for us. Yeah, but he can't catch the ball. And, and that ends up being a, a, a huge problem. So I think when teams look at a player and they look at DK and they think, okay, where, what are his deficiencies? And obviously the change of direction for a guy that big, it's not too surprising that that's going to be the case. But I think getting, you know, his, running his route, you know, those are kind of things that, there have been a lot of guys that have come to the NFL, and they're not polished route runners. They've, they've basically gotten by on their athleticism for so long, and they're big and strong. And they, they sort of, the good ones end up learning how to do it at the pro level. And then the guys, obviously, like Kevin White, you know, they don't, they don't make it. They can never turn themselves into a good receiver because, they, and Kevin had some of those too. He was not a great route, route runner. You know, and then on top of it, he didn't catch the ball. Look, as long as DK Metcalf can catch the football and catch it consistently, he'll be in the NFL long enough to be able to work on his inadequacy as a route runner if there is such a thing. So he'll he'll be there. He'll learn. That's one of the things that I think the great ones end up learning about themselves. Look, Jerry Rice when he got to the NFL, he was not a pristine route runner. He was a good route runner, but he wasn't fast. But he worked on that day in and day out, and he ended up turning into one of the greatest route runners of all time, if not the greatest. Right. On top of that, he worked on his hands every day. So those are all things that DK can work on. As long as he knows what his deficiencies are. Hey, you know, Coach, I know that I don't do this really well. I'm going to work at it. I'm going to work at it. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. I mean, I've seen a guy like DeAndre Hopkins, Richard. I see him every single day. And I've seen a guy that didn't run great routes when he got to the NFL. And, look, he doesn't run tremendous routes right now. But you throw it in the city, he's going to go catch it. He's going to box you out, and he's going to go catch the football. Now, he's not going to be able to go deep a lot of times like maybe D.K. Metcalf can. So there are going to be some different things. But Hop goes and gets the football even if he hasn't run a tremendous route. And that's what it is really at the end of the day. I know it sounds crazy, but if you catch the football, you're going to be fine. And I think D.K. is going to end up being fine in the NFL. And, and I know that sounds weird. A guy at that size, at that speed, is going to be fine. Uh, but I think he's going to learn the finer points of playing receiver. And if he ends up in the right system with the right quarterback, he's going to have a good long career being an all-pro at some point. John, I'd like to switch gears with you. Uh, Phil Longo was a name that, that you knew when he was at Sam Houston State. I remember you and I talking when he was hired at Ole Miss uh, about the fact that it was going to be interesting to see how his system worked. Uh, put up massive numbers, or his offenses at Ole Miss put up massive numbers, but they struggled in the red zone and didn't score points against good teams. Mac Brown hires him to be the uh, the offensive coordinator. Would have been interesting to see how that would have played out at Ole Miss because I, I think they were ready to go a different direction. When you see the amount of offensive talent at the combine that Ole Miss had, and then you kind of juxtapose that with Phil Longo calling plays and some deficiencies that they had offensively. Is that immediately an indictment on that offense, or is there something else there? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, the first thing that stood out, Richard, wasn't so much the Ole Miss offense, but when I, sat, I saw those two corners, 
or the two defensive backs from Ole Miss run as well as they did, I thought, well, what the hell are they doing on defense? That was my, <laughs> first, that was my first thought. I didn't really, okay, I that's didn't really fair also. Them. Yeah, um, but then again, when you watch Ole Miss, you, you know and you knew there were deficiencies on the front seven. I mean, outside of Benito Jones, I mean, you looked around and went, boy, there are no Kambichis, there are no big-time linebackers. I mean, it, those players just aren't, aren't here right now. But hopefully they will be there. I think, you know, one of the things that was interesting about, about uh, you know, Ole, uh, Ole Miss and Long, he, he said, and I heard him say this when he was at St. Houston State, he said, look, we don't have a lot of plays in our system. We don't do a whole lot. But we go fast and we put a lot of pressure on opposing defenses. And I think when you look at Ole Miss, that, that's exactly what you saw. You saw an offense that went really fast. They took a lot of shots downfield. You know, they didn't run a lot of zone game. You know, when you're watching, they ran some power. You know, they did some things uh, because they, they you know, rarely used Dawson Knox as an inline tight end. You know, he moved as an, F, uh, as an F tight end, which is more a receiving tight end or a U tight end, which is kind of a combination of a Y and an F, kind of an inline guy and a receiver, kind of right in the mix in the middle. Which, by the way, I think that's going to be one of the bigger indictments down the road is that Dawson Knox wasn't used more. I think he's going to end up finding a really nice home in the NFL. So I, I just think that Phil's offense, the scheme and how he ran it with the talent he had, I think maybe there I don't want to say there were deficiencies because, man, they scored. They put the ball They put the ball in the end zone. They weren't, you know, tremendous in the, in the red zone, and there were times where they probably could have done more against, against better teams. But I think that his scheme was probably not the best fit with all the, the, the receiver talent that they had and the tight end talent. I could have seen them using maybe a little bit more, um, a little bit more Dawson Knox at wide tight end, trying to run a little bit more zone game. Maybe not trying to go as fast, but using some of the route combinations with AJ and DK on the same side to get them free. I think that might have that might have helped a little bit. But I think in the end, we're all going to look back and say, well, what were they? Why didn't they use Dawson Knox a little bit better? But like I said, I didn't think too much about that as much as I thought about the defensive side of the ball. When you see guys that fast in the secondary, you think, man, how the heck was Alabama throwing all those deep balls uh, against the secondary that had guys that ran four two nine and four three eight or whatever it was? So it was uh, that was that was the thought I had was more the defensive side of the ball than the offense because I think Phil did a, did a solid job. I just think it got to a point where it maybe wasn't the right fit. If that makes if that makes sense, you know they put a lot of pressure on teams, but. In the long run, I don't know if it was the right fit for Ole Miss with that amount of talent at those positions and that kind of talent. I think I could have seen them go a little bit more pro-style than I would what Phil ran with them. I think they might have been just as effective, if not more, especially because they would put Dawson Knox in play, who I thought could have been used a little bit more effectively. Interesting stuff. Uh, John Harris on your uh, on your radio, just about out of time. So. How many steaks did you eat at St. Elmo's while you were <laughs> you were in Indianapolis? Well, you know it's funny because St. El- I went to St. Elmo's once, and I and I was like, "This is good, it's good." But we ended up going to a different steakhouse, and, and it's called Five Forty Seven. And uh, the Wednesday when we go, we went Wednesday night. Wednesday night, it was five of us: it was me and Mark, my my play by play man, and a few others on our, on our broadcast team. And they put our table over by the window. And right as we were sitting down, we looked over, and there was a table not 10 feet away from us. Frank Reich, Andy Reid, Zach Taylor, a new coach of the Bengals, John Fox. They were all at this table. And, I mean, it was like 
was like the Godfather. Everybody in that place was walking over to Andy Reid to like kiss the ring a little bit. I mean, it was incredible to see the reaction, you know, to Andy Reid. Mike Tirico came in. He sat at the table next to us. He walks over to Andy Reid. Talks to all those coaches, obviously, because he knows them. It's just really cool to be in Indianapolis and kind of everything that's going on. Everything's being talked about in the world of football at that moment. It's happening right there in in front of you, and I think that's a really cool kind of situation to be in, at least for me. I mean, I, I love that yeah. kind of stuff, but certainly the I hit uh, 547 all the time. There you go. Certainly the epicenter of, uh, of pro football last week. John, always good to visit with you. Appreciate your time this afternoon, and uh, look forward to talking to you a little, little more. Back with you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. We're going to stay on the Farm Bureau phone line this afternoon. Joined now by Jimmy Dykes, college basketball analyst at ESPN. A little Super Tuesday action tonight at the Pavilion as Ole Miss hosts Kentucky. Final home game of the regular season for the Rebels. Jimmy, appreciate a, a few minutes of your time this afternoon. Uh, is this going to be a good one tonight in Oxford? Richard, we all think it is. Uh, Laura Rutledge and Carl Ravitch are with me tonight, and we watch both teams practice. And Kentucky comes in really kind of kind of stumbling a little bit. They're not they're not really sure who they are right now. Without Reed Travis, they have not played well. Last you know game and a half going back to their last game last Tuesday against Arkansas, they were down 15 on their home floor. So, and Ole Miss comes in knowing that they are just one win away, just one win somewhere. And they lock up an NCAA tournament berth if they haven't already. So, you know, the emotion of senior night with TD, that's such a great story for a kid that didn't play a lot of freshman year but hung in there and proved everybody he's an all-SEC player. And um, so, that, you know, I think that in the standing room only crowd again. So it's a big game. You know, Kentucky's trying to find themselves and, and stay in the hunt for an SEC regular season title, which is going to need some help now. And, and, and Ole Miss is – if you guys know better than we do, they are literally two possessions away from being in fourth place all by themselves. They're, they're, they're a very dangerous team in those three guards. Lose two games last week by a total of three points at home to number 7 Tennessee, then they lose on the road on Saturday uh, against Arkansas. What is there a specific matchup or maybe a couple of specific matchups that you're looking at tonight that you think – kind of will tell the story or will make the difference one way or another for, for either of these two teams? Yeah, I think, you know, can Ole Miss handle P.J. Washington? And, you know, can how anybody? You handle him? You know, it's, I think that's the real key is P.J. for Kentucky is such a hard guy to guard, Richard, and how you guard him and, and early we'll be looking at that for Ole Miss because uh, that kid's really good now, especially on that left block, and I think you're concerned if you're Ole Miss with handling Kentucky with their they just run a lot of pin down action into jump shots for Hero and Kelvin Johnson and different guys. So Ole Miss defensively they're gonna have to be locked in and, and they're gonna have to hold their own on the boards. I don't think they can beat Kentucky rebounding, but they can't just get punished. Um and I think for Kentucky their concern is, you know, at all times when Kermit has those three guards on the floor, that it's a that's that's a hard match for Kentucky defensively because now, Hero, Keldon Johnson, combination, they're going to have to be chasing guys around on the perimeter and trying to stay in front of the ball. And that has not been Kentucky's strength this year. Uh, as good as they've been defensively, they, they still have some breakdowns in those issues. So um, I think if you're Ole Miss, you know going in, they've got to make some threes. Ole Miss has to make some threes in that building tonight. 
uh, to kind of offset that size advantage that Kentucky has, it seems, in a two-point part of the floor. Jimmy, it's interesting to me looking at, at this Kentucky team with how much they've developed as the season goes, has gone along, and that's not unusual for a, for a John Calipari team. But everybody kind of compares Kentucky and where they are now maybe to that game against Duke. I want to rewind even farther. You and I did an exhibition game in Lexington against Transylvania, and we walked away from that game going, well, I mean, obviously they were going to win that one, but there are things they've got to get better at, especially on the defensive end. And somewhere along the way, they turned into a really good defensive team. What was John Calipari able to do with this team in particular to get them to play at the level defensively that he wanted to see? You know, Richard, that's a great question. Uh, I think Calipari focused on offense too much coming out of the Bahamas and going into the Bahamas. And he realized that, that they were way behind defensively early, even in that transit game. Like, it was obvious they couldn't guard the ball. They could not stay in front of the ball. And then all of a sudden the rotations were in question. And he had to, he had to really strip them down and go all the way back to moving their feet and line drills, just basic stuff. And, and he did a lot of teaching uh, during that month of November. And they slowly worked their way out of it to be, where they became one of the top Ten defensive teams in the country right now going into tonight, yeah. but um, you know he, he kind of got ahead of it, I think, a little bit, and now they've now they've caught up. But they were exposed again by Tennessee on Saturday in some areas, and you know Tennessee is is they are they are a real team that I completely one hundred percent trust on a neutral floor in Nashville next week or in the NCAA tournament. I, I not that I don't trust Kentucky, but I really trust Tennessee, and until. The Cats get Reed Travis back. I, I, they can't win a national title without Reed Travis. Kentucky can't. They, they can win one with him because defensively, he really kind of sets the tone and, and anchors that interior defense for them. Jimmy Dykes on your radio, college basketball analyst with ESPN. He's in Oxford for Ole Miss and Kentucky tonight. Jimmy, I'd like to go kind of big picture. Um, Story breaks today that uh, you've got sentencing handed down for three people uh, as part of the FBI investigation. Uh, We've got to wait and see kind of where this all goes. I'm curious from being around the game for as long as you've been around, what would you like to see happen with college basketball when all of this investigation stuff is said and done? Well, I hope university presidents and athletic directors start stepping up and holding their own guys more accountable. And when you see rules, and it's proven that rules have been broken, I think the punishment needs to be a whole lot more severe from within the university than it is now. And that's not always the case. And I think until until those uh, severe punishments are, are, are put in guys' contracts and they, and they know and they step out of those boundaries, that they're, uh, they're they're liable to to lose their job, then that sends a really strong message, a much stronger message than is being sent right now in, in, a, in a lot of cases. So it's interesting to watch. You know, we got two guys, Richard, that we know of on April the 22nd are going to be subpoenaed, and Sean Miller and Will Wade at LSU. And what comes out of that? What's on those wiretaps? What what are the names are going to be called in the federal court over in the off season? It's a, it's a it's still a really big story, and I think changes are coming. I just I'm anxious to see the accountability that the leaderships on each individual campus. What do they do about it when this is all said and done? 
I don't know if this has been your experience this year or not, but it's been interesting to me in talking with coaches as I've traveled throughout the season that that you've got a lot of guys that, one, are, are willing and interested in talking about what's going on, and two, don't hesitate to say, we want to see these guys exposed that are cheating, and we'd like to see the game cleaned up a little bit. Has that been surprising to you, or has that been your experience at all this year? Yeah, it's not surprising, and it has been my experience, because I've seen too many coaches that do it the right way lose their jobs because they can't win games against guys who aren't doing it the right way. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with them, man. It's, it's, let, let, let's, let's just wade through it, and if that means guys uh, get, the, get the life sentence in terms of you can never coach an NCAA Division One ball again, that's fine. I, I'm completely fine with that because – you know, there, there are whether you agree with the rules, don't agree with the rules, whatever. We still have rules, and and you know, right is right and wrong is wrong, even when when no one else is doing it or if everyone else is doing it. And I, I think that's kind of where we're at right now with the coaches that have done their best to to stay within those boundaries and guidelines. I, I think they've had enough of it, and I, it's hopefully when we get uh, two years from now when we get the same behind us for the most part. We've made major steps in that area. Jimmy, last thing, about a minute left, back to basketball. Five teams right now vying for that number four seed, the double bye in Nashville next week. Mississippi State, Auburn, Ole Miss, Florida, South Carolina, all at nine and seven. You got a best guess as to who emerges from that group and, and gets the double bye? Gosh, Richard, I don't. <laughs> it, 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 it's, such a, it's such a muddied mess in there that we can't even – tonight even even expand on who could get that fourth seed because there's so many tiebreakers that you have to go through to put all shake down and shake out. So I, it, this, when I glanced at it earlier today, it looks like South Carolina may have the easier uh, last two games. And I, I can't agree. tell you who they're against, but it looks like schedule-wise in favor of South Carolina. So that, that's, as, that's as deep as I can go for you right now. Well, and the interesting thing is that the four teams not named South Carolina all play either Tennessee or Kentucky in their final two games. And then with South Carolina, they go to Texas A&M, and they've got Georgia. And so, yeah, on paper, those are the easiest two games. But both of those teams are playing a little bit better, and South Carolina has not played as well as of late. It's right. hard to it's hard to yeah. decipher. Yeah, 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 it really is. That's a huge deal, man, finishing fourth. You know, that's a... That's a huge deal. But you heard some some coaches say, you know, for if we're not like if we need another win, like they're okay with having to play on Thursday too. I, I, and I see that logic, you know, like if you're yeah. not sure, like if you're being projected as a ten or eleven seed, maybe you want that one more win that you can maybe get on Thursday if if, if you're not finishing that fourth spot. I don't know. It's going to be a crazy race in Nashville. I know that. It certainly is, and we're going to have a lot of fun with that next week. Jimmy, appreciate some of your time this afternoon. Look forward to seeing you tonight at the uh, at the Pavilion. Yeah, Richard, come, absolutely. Come say hi to us, buddy. See you. Absolutely. That's Jimmy Dykes, college basketball analyst at ESPN. Let me run with you tonight. Today is Mardi Gras Day. Fat Tuesday, if you prefer. Ash Wednesday coming tomorrow. I guess the end of parade season in and around New Orleans and Mobile. I know there's a big parade in Mobile, I'm sure, on the uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast 
a lot of stuff happening as well. Some of that may have already happened and uh, and wrapped up. Richard Cross, Michael Borky with you for the 5 o'clock hour on Sports Talk Mississippi. It's brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank online. You can find them at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. At Mississippi Land Bank, they've been financing land for over a 100 years. If you're in North Mississippi and you've got land financing needs of any kind, then Mississippi Land Bank can help. If you're a farmer with equipment loan needs or you need to buy a new piece of property that you're going to farm, maybe it's refinancing an existing loan or getting your crop loans in order, Mississippi Land Bank can help with that. Maybe you're not a farmer. Maybe you're just building a dream house on a uh, perfect piece of property. Maybe it's actually buying that perfect piece of property. Uh, Mississippi Land Bank, again, has been financing land for over 100 years. And at Mississippi Land Bank, they know the lay of the land. Bottom of the sixth inning in Starkville, East Carolina is now on the board. It's 2-1, to one. Mississippi State leading over East Carolina in a top 25 matchup at Duty Noble. Swayze Field in Oxford, Ole Miss leading 7-4 to four over Little Rock in the top of the sixth inning. Ole Miss led in the game 7 to nothing. Little Rock scored four runs in the top of the fifth. So, you got basketball coming up tonight. Both Ole Miss and Mississippi State will play at 8 o'clock. Ole Miss at home against Kentucky. Mississippi State on the road against Tennessee. It is time right now for us to take a look at the college football fix. College football fix driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com. Find out why the best-selling trucks are built Ford Tough. You can find out all that Ford has to offer. Go to your local Mississippi Ford dealer and test drive the F-150, best-selling truck in America for 42 straight years. You will find out why when you get behind the wheel. Borky, you say this is officially the beginning now of list season? Yeah, we're in college football list season. Mark it down, March 5th, 2019. <laughs> the lists are out. List number one is out from Athlon Sports. It is the ranking of SEC coaching jobs, 14 through 1. Or 1 through 14, if you prefer. Number 14 on the list, the Vanderbilt Commodores. They say for the right coach, Vanderbilt is an ideal destination. Great city, great school, not a ton of pressure to win, and yet it's one of the most difficult jobs in the country. Why? Well, small fan base, lack of tradition, sometimes a question as to whether or not Vanderbilt as a school, as an institution, is all that committed to winning in football. So they are at the bottom of the list. Kentucky at 13, Missouri at 12, then back-to-back Mississippi State at 11, and Ole Miss at 10. They rank Arkansas at number 9, followed by South Carolina. Then you've got Tennessee at 7, Auburn at 6, A&M at 5, LSU 4, Florida 3, Alabama 2, and Georgia number 1. All right, Borky, I know there were some things about this list that you didn't like, so let's start there. Well, real quick, I would put LSU ahead of Florida just for various reasons. But the biggest thing when I saw this, and it's a sentiment shared by more than just whoever made the first list of list season 2019 for Athlon, is explain to me what makes South Carolina a better college football job than Ole Miss and or Mississippi State. Something tangible. What makes South Carolina a better job than Ole Miss and Mississippi State? Let's see. Here's what they say about the South Carolina job. In a vacuum, 
South Carolina offers just about everything a coach needs to win at the highest level, but South Carolina doesn't play in a vacuum. They play in the SEC, where it competes with some of the elite programs in the nation. They also, and I'm adding this, it's not part of the write-up, play in a state where the reigning national champ resides and a team that has been in the college football playoff in four consecutive years in Clemson. That in and of itself makes it a harder job than maybe it has been at some points in the past. What do you think the reasons are? I mean, bigger stadium, bigger fan base, more resources? But the thing is, I mean, yes, the stadium is a little bit bigger. And they just opened a brand new facility, and it's nice. And Columbia is a bigger place, and the state of South Carolina has more people. But, I mean, I'm from there. And... I think when people make these lists and look at these jobs, one, they're stuck in the past, and two, don't take into account recruiting base. Because per capita, and by numbers, Mississippi puts out more and better high school prospects than the state of South Carolina. And although there are two SEC schools in the state of Mississippi, as you mentioned, Clemson is a dominating force in college football an hour and a half up the road. They have a nicer campus. They're in a nicer town. They have a coach that more people like, and they're winning titles. So, yeah, they've got a bigger stadium. It's fine, but does that really make a job that much better? I don't think so. And it's not all that nice. It's bigger, but it's not that nice. The facilities are fine. The the campus is okay. The town is kind of gross. I'm not a big fan of Columbia. There's just nothing about it tangible that tells me it is a better job, an objectively better job than the two we've got here. Columbia as a town has actually grown on me a little bit. I don't know if it's because I've spent some more time there. Um, And it is getting better, to their credit, especially the downtown area, getting better than when I was growing up, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think those are all relevant points. Although I would say whether it's Athlon or anybody else, if you ask somebody to make a list, 1 through 14 of the best jobs in the SEC, I don't think many people would put Mississippi State or Ole Miss in front of South Carolina. They would not. Nobody would. And that's that's my question is why not? Yeah. What makes it better? Some of it's perception, right? Exactly. I think that's the only thing. That's why I said tangible is because there's nothing that you can point to directly that says it's better. Over the course of the last decade, haven't both Ole Miss and Mississippi State been better programs than South Carolina? Yeah, and they have a higher recruiting profile, and they're putting more and better players in the NFL. They're paying their coaches more money. Just saying. And South Carolina was a horrendous job before Steve Spurrier took it and won games because he's Steve Spurrier and he could win games anywhere. I mean, he's winning games in the AAF. They've got the best team in the AAF and he's coaching it. He just quit there at the end, but it's not a good job and it wasn't a good job. They just had a, I mean, a Hall of Fame level coach and they were winning at an unprecedented level, which was just winning bowl games and going to one SEC championship and getting smoked by Auburn in that one SEC championship. Like, that's the extent of their their best years in program history. You know, it's interesting. When you have a list like this, so much of what's there is based on perception, right? Yep. So, So listen to what they write about Mississippi State and about Ole Miss. They've got Mississippi State as the 11th 
best job in the SEC. Thanks to facility upgrades and a recent track record of success, winning seasons in eight of the last nine years, the perception of this program has improved significantly in the past decade. Still, it's a tough job. The competition is brutal, and Starkville is regarded as the least desirable SEC locale to call home. I mean, it's like they just cut and pasted from another article with putting that last sentence in there against Starkville. Starkville's a town is fine. Hey, good restaurants. Downtown areas come a long way. Campus is really pretty. In fact, the strides that, that as a campus Mississippi State has made in the last 15 years, if you had not been to Starkville in 15 years, and maybe most places in the SEC you could say this, but I think Mississippi State even stands out above the others. If you had not been on Mississippi State's campus in 15 years, but you had a vivid memory of what it looked like 15 years ago, and I dropped you at one of the entrances to campus or right in the middle of campus, and you opened your eyes, you would not believe that it was Mississippi State. Whether it's academic buildings or student services buildings or the student union or the you know, the junction or the football stadium or the baseball stadium, obviously at this point, you know, about the only thing that you would recognize would be the hump and a few dorms and the Hunter Henry building, which has all the odd lines on the roof. Those are the things that you would recognize. Everything else you'd be like, I'm in a different place. It doesn't look the same. Here's what they say about the Ole Miss job. One of the most interesting jobs in the SEC. History of success, but it's from the 50s and 60s. Strong recruiting base, but fierce competition for those players. Facilities are good, but not quite as flashy as most of the schools it recruits against. Bottom line, good job in a very difficult league. Pretty fair assessment of the Ole Miss job. It's a hard job. Mississippi State's a hard job also. I don't I'm not sure that necessarily Arkansas should just automatically go in front of Ole Miss and Mississippi State. To me there's some debate there. More coming up at your college football fix in the Renaissance Bank Studio. Mississippi State has added a run in the bottom of the sixth inning. They lead now three to one over East Carolina. Ole Miss batting in the bottom of the sixth as well. They're up seven to four with Tyler Keenan on first and Thomas Dillard at the plate. Actually, he walks. So Ole Miss has got first and second with one out and Ryan Olenek coming to the plate. He is two for two today. Has driven in a run and has a sacrifice bunt. That's right. Sacrifice bunt. Yeah, 500. the silence speaks 500 for itself. Um, let's go back quickly to this uh, this list of coaching jobs in the SEC. They've got Georgia 1, Alabama 2, Florida 3, and then LSU at 4. See, I would think LSU's a better job than Florida, right? Mm. Florida's behind in facilities. Even though the state of Florida is just rich with recruits, you still have to compete against two other major programs. And LSU is a one-trick pony in a state that is insanely talent-rich with the best game home in-game stadium atmosphere in the country. Yeah, but Florida's not that behind in the facility. I mean, the stadium is fine. They've added an indoor practice facility, and as soon as baseball is done... 
building their new baseball stadium, they're building one of those football-only facilities. Yeah. So they're kind of playing catch-up on the facilities front. About Georgia as the number one job, they say the sleeping giant is awake. Perhaps no job in the country offers the best of every world like Georgia. Great recruiting base, great pet place to live, great fan base. You get the point. The one knock, the administration hasn't necessarily been as all-in as some of the Bulldogs' rivals in the league. Well, I don't know if it's administration as much as the other the, the mechanism. And the mechanism is all in at this point. All in. How do you not put Alabama as the best job in the SEC, though? How do you do it? Well, Richard, it's because they've got the best coach. Well, okay. It's not the first time they've had the best coach either, though. There's, isn't there a reason they have that best coach too? And two why best, best coaches coach in the history of the for... game have coached. Yeah, two best coaches in the history of the game have coached at Alabama, and you had Gene Stallings that won a national championship there in between the two. When they've got the right coach at Alabama, they win more than anybody else. When they don't have the right coach, it's a little bit of a, you know, like a, a ship without a rudder. When Mike Shula is the coach, or Dennis Francione is the coach, or whomever. But when it's Bear Bryant, or Gene Stallings, or Nick Saban, and the right coach is in place, there's not a better job in the country. It's just not. And it doesn't matter if you have Alabama fatigue or not. I think most of us do. The commitment at Alabama is different than the commitment everywhere else. Period. Georgia may be getting into the game. I, would I rather live in Athens than Tuscaloosa? Absolutely. Do I have a better chance to win a national championship at Alabama or at Georgia? It's at Alabama. Period. Easier to win a national championship at Alabama than it is at Georgia, than it is at Florida, than it is at LSU, or anywhere else in all of college football that you can name. It just is. And I've gone back to this conversation probably 50 times in the last seven years. Conversation I had with Gene Stallings at SEC Media Days. If you could go back and do it all over again at your alma mater A&M or at Alabama. And he just kind of had this sly grin on his face, and he goes, eh, it's just something about Alabama. Yeah, there is. That's why it should be the number one job on the list. All right, let's move along. Well, you did say something real quick uh, about Arkansas. Uh, You had the same thought about Arkansas that I do South Carolina. Give me something tangible that tells me that Arkansas is a better job than Ole Miss and Mississippi State. It's not, and I can give you a really simple answer as to why. Have you looked at Arkansas' schedule this year? Seriously, have you looked at it? They play two home SEC games this year. Which is so stupid because they just renovated that already very nice stadium again. Two home SEC games. They got Mississippi State and Auburn coming to Fayetteville this year. They play Missouri and Little Rock, and they play that permanent home-and-home, whatever, with Texas A&M in Dallas. 
they're going to eventually get out of that deal, and they'll get the Texas A&M game back at home. But as long as they are giving away one of their SEC games to Little Rock, I mean, you're playing an extra road game. And nobody else does that. And Little Rock is not the environment that it once was. There was a time where Arkansas just did not lose in Little Rock under Houston Nutt. They just didn't. They won them all. But that's not the case there anymore. They don't win them all in Little Rock. And it's three hours from campus. And I understand the political implications and why they're doing it. And I like games in Little Rock. But that in and of itself makes Arkansas a job that is less desirable than Ole Miss or Mississippi State. The recruiting base is not nearly what Ole Miss and Mississippi State have. The facilities are nice, but if you only play two SEC games in your your own building, then what are we talking about, a nice practice facility? Hard to recruit to. Not particularly easy to get to, although you can fly into the airport 45 minutes from Fayetteville. And they've not won anything significantly in, you know, basically in the same time frame since Ole Miss's last won something significant. Which is not a better job. Resources are there. Passionate fan base. Big fan base. Only game in the state of Arkansas. Those things matter, I suppose. But they don't outweigh only playing two home SEC games. Yeah, and when people make lists like this, I'm telling you, the biggest mistake they make is failing to take into account local recruiting, in-state prospects, and just recruiting profiles for these programs. You cannot live off of Arkansas and win at Arkansas. And are you going to go into Texas and take the elite players from Texas, who's back in Texas A&M, who uh, you mentioned Georgia's machine is is working, so is Texas A&M's now. Yep. It's harder now to go to other states, even though this year in Mississippi doesn't exactly apply. Generally, it's harder to go into other states and take the best prospects in the country now. And Arkansas's not doing that. They can't do that. We'll see what kind of a job they can do recruiting on a year-in, year-out basis with Chad Morris. They had a lot of success this past year. But they did not close well. <clears throat> they did not. They actually ended up, what, just behind Ole Miss and Mississippi State in the recruiting rankings. Mm-hmm. I want to get to this because this is interesting to me. We've got some changes for the bowl cycle that starts in 2020, so not this year but the next year. In 2020, the Las Vegas Bowl moves from Sam Boyd Stadium, on U, uh, which is where UNLV plays, to the new Las Vegas NFL Stadium. In the course of the six-year deal, the SEC and the Big Ten will each make three appearances against the Pac-12 in the Vegas Bowl. It's expected to be either the third or the fourth place Pac-12 team after the Rose Bowl and Alamo Bowls are filled. So it's not just an SEC team or a Big Ten team going. It's going and playing a pretty decent team out of the Pac-12. So how do you make that happen with the existing tie-ins? Well, the Belt Bowl is now going to rotate with either an SEC team or a Big Ten team based on which league is in the Las Vegas Bowl in a given year. The Charlotte Bowl will feature annually an ACC team against either somebody from the SEC or the Big Ten. That's super cool. By the way, this story comes from uh, from Stadium. Stadium. Watchstadium.com. Uh, starting in 2020, 
The Gator Bowl will feature ACC against SEC. Starting in 2020, the Music City Bowl will be SEC against Big Ten. I love that. Outback Bowl will continue to feature SEC versus Big Ten, as it has since 1995. However, there is a caveat here. Starting in 2020, when a Big Ten team earns a berth into the Orange Bowl, an ACC team will take the Big Ten's place in the Outback Bowl. So that's the arrangement that was previously in place with the Citrus Bowl. So starting with the new bowl cycle in 2020, so again, not this coming season, but the following season, the SEC and the ACC will have 11 bowl tie-ins each. That's the guaranteed minimum bowl tie-in, not including appearances in the college football playoff. How about that? So there certainly is a scenario where there's some years where the SEC will not fill its bowl allotment. If you were to get two teams into the college football playoff, that would mean you would need 13 bowl-eligible teams to fill all your slots. That's crazy. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.